Well, I apologize for the uniform. I taught this morning and we'll, we'll teach again uh, this evening. So I just, uh, you all are in the middle. Um, if you all will take one of these and pass them around, it's just a little outline that uh, one might call an academic outline, uh, sort of an informal uh, commentary on the passage in Acts 17 that records Paul's sermon in Athens. And uh, I thought that it would be a good way to begin to talk uh, about it, to show some pictures. I ordinarily do not show um, PowerPoint. And there's a reason for that. Now, I want to say uh, seriously, and I, I got a good laugh from and at the expense of uh, Billy Smith. Uh, one Wednesday night this uh, last year, because I'm, he knows that I almost never use PowerPoint, and so I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on Wednesday night, and uh, I say I, I don't ordinarily use PowerPoint. I'm a Christian. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not. I'm not morally opposed to it, however. It's just that I think that you you surrender something when you direct people's attention anywhere other than the speaker. You, you lose something. Ideally, you would want someone to pay the greatest possible attention to not only what you said, but how you said it, including facial expression and a modulation of voice and the whole thing, to make the greatest possible connection. And so you lose something with PowerPoint. Sometimes you gain more than you lose, and so it's appropriate to use it. Uh, with pictures, hey, by definition, if the picture is worth showing, it's worth diverting the attention to see the picture. This is a picture of uh, Athens taken about a dozen years ago or so, uh, and of course that's the Acropolis uh, and in the middle there, and, and in the, this picture is taken from the northeast, and the part of Athens that is described, or is the setting, for um, Acts 17 is not visible, because there is no hill that I could take a picture of that from. Um, it's on the west side of the Acropolis. Uh, modern Athens, that means like Los Angeles or something. It just stretches forever, and there's no break, and ancient Athens is very small. About a mile across. Uh, it can take about 500 acres. And you can see that um, the Acropolis, some of that territory would not have been suitable for residences. And therefore, uh, ancient Athens um, never had a population of more than about 40,000 people. It was the largest city in classical Greece, but that's because, that's like saying Henderson's the largest city in Chester County, uh, <laughs> there are just no big cities in classical Greece. This is the Temple of Hephaestus, which is the um, best preserved uh, temple other than the Parthenon uh, in uh, modern Athens. Uh, not much survived in modern Athens uh, from the classical period because there was so much war uh, the Parthenon, uh, it, it, as uh, some of you may know, had um, survived almost undamaged 
until about 325 years ago when some lunatic turned it into an ammunition dump. Uh, a shell hits inside it and blows it up from the inside. So that that's, that's why the outer columns uh, are, are so nicely preserved. And it, it's certainly a testament to how substantial they are, where the inside was completely demolished. And um, this picture is taken from the Agora, right, where Paul was walking around trying to strike up conversation with people and successfully doing so. This is the Parthenon itself. Parthenon, of course, means maiden in Greek. That is the maiden goddess, Athena, the patron goddess of the city. And, uh, hey, it's really nice. And <laughs> that's not just my judgment. That's been the judgment of cultured people for at least 24 centuries. Right? It was regarded by artistic people as um, perfect. Right? There's, a, there's a library in Venice that the, the greatest architect of all time, a man who's known as Palladio, who named himself after Athena. Right? Her other name is Pallas Athena. Well, Palladio said of a, of a building designed by his teacher that it was the most perfect building in the world. That's what people said about the Parthenon in the time of Paul. And this is a picture of Mars Hill taken from um, the uh, Acropolis and almost, I'm, I'm, I'm very close uh, to the Parthenon itself. I'm, I'm standing a little bit uh, away from the Propylaea, that is the gateway to the Acropolis and the Parthenon. And as you can see, it's quite small and was quite small in antiquity. It's been beat up through the years with war and other uh, problems. Uh, the uh, Areopagus, it, it means Mars Hill, the hill that belongs to uh, the god of war, uh, Ares in Greek, Mars in Latin. Um, it gave its name to a law court that uh, traditionally had met there. By the time, by Roman times, it's absolutely clear that the Areopagus did not always meet on the Areopagus. And therefore, we don't know whether uh, Paul was preaching at that spot or whether he was preaching to the meeting of the Areopagus at some other location in the city. Now, again, because the, the, the biggest problem for preserving ancient cities is modern cities. People dig things up and bulldoze them over. And uh, Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, had the good luck to be utterly destroyed and never rebuilt. Good luck from our point of view. Right? And so I can't show you a typical street from ancient Athens. This is a typical street from ancient Ephesus. Um, and uh, I guess what I wanted to emphasize was that Paul walking around the streets of Athens, right? he says it was katedros, that is, full of idols. Um, hey, the doctor's office right, would have had symbols that connected the doctor to the patron god of his profession, Esculapius, the staff and the serpent. 
Pausanias says at one point that there were 3,000 statues in uh, ancient Athens. Remember, that's 500 acres. That's six statues, six statues an acre for the city. Uh, it, it is a, a, uh, a great uh, treasury of art in Roman times. Um, and, and by the way, that's a cautionary point. Um, in doing uh, research and preparing for this talk, I found all sorts of really fascinating false information. <laughs> you get on the internet and it says there were 30,000 idols in Athens. Well, uh, no. Pausanias says there are 3,000 statues. Some of them would have been idols and some of them not. And public buildings. This, this building did not exist at the time of Paul. It was written when he was in Ephesus. It was built uh, two generations later. It's called the Library of Celsus. It was never a library, but it was a sort of lecture hall. It would have been exactly the kind of building that Paul might have been invited to speak to the Stoics or the Epicureans. And it, it nicely exemplifies the Roman connection to Greece because the Greeks had culture and the Romans had money and they had lots of it. And so the Roman Empire, um, the emperors especially, uh, favored the great uh, Greek cities of, of remarkable culture. So that um, uh, two generations after Paul, the emperor Hadrian provided most of the money for the construction of a temple of Zeus in Athens, the largest religious structure ever made in the ancient world. Uh, only a few columns now exist. Um, final slide. This is a close-up of one of the little niches on the facade of the Library of Celsus. And um, it's an example of the kind of statue that is it an idol? Is it philosophy or is it religion? And I think that some of the Athenians would have been asking themselves that question about what Paul was talking about. Right? Some modern commentators in particular think that, that some of his original hearers might have been confused when he said, I'm, I'm preaching the resurrection. Well, the, the ideal resurrection or you know an abstraction personified as resurrection well this is virtue arete uh, and the other uh, great classical virtues are presented in with similar statues on the front of the library of Celsus the same sort of thing uh, would have been true at uh, Athens and why don't we turn that off now? I think that's all. Yeah. Um, and uh, can I? Yeah. All right. um, what to, to emphasize? It, by the time of Paul. Athens has become a fairly sleepy um, town. 
that's uh, hard to imagine a, an exact um, equivalent in the modern world, maybe Florence or Venice in, in Italy. Um, more Florence than Venice, because Venice is sort of an uh, outdoor museum, but was never intellectually prominent. Europeans would regard Florence as, boy, this is the place where Dante grew up. Um, and the Romans looked at the, the great art in Athens and also said, oh, I'm like, like some of us when we go to the promise to the prom that's a Freudian slip, the <laughs> Palestine. <laughs> right. uh, 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 yeah, I'm not talking about national. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm walking where Jesus walked. Well, they'd say, I'm, I'm walking where Socrates walked. The greatest human beings um, that have ever lived. And this was their home, and so I want to see that, and I want to experience it. And wealthy um, young Romans uh, would go to school for uh, a year or so um, in Athens, in addition to their other teaching. So the young Julius Caesar does that. Um, I wish we, we have a, a nice description of Athens by Pausanias in the first half of the second century. There is a, a more famous and a far more trustworthy um, intelligent uh, writer in the first century died in the eruption of Vesuvius uh, named Pliny the Elder. And Pliny writes a book and he, he's describing going through Greece. And he gets to Athens and he says, it needs no description. And he means it. That's the chapter on Athens. I've often thought, you, you realize how goofy I feel when they ask me at the lectureship to introduce Brother May to somebody like that. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm introducing uh, Brother May, and I've, uh, I've often thought I would bet, Dale, that your brother Jeff would, would let me do it. I've often thought of just getting up and saying, Jeff Jenkins needs no introduction, and then sitting down without another word. <laughs> well, that, that's what plenty does with Athens. Um, but hard to overstress its prestige. Paul comes in and he is a stranger. And the, the Greek emphasizes this word. Um, it occurs as a noun, as a verb, as an adjective. Um, it's a word from which we get um, the idea of hospitality. Uh, and he's, he's a stranger in a city that's that's obviously full of them, right? That's what university towns and tourist towns are. You go to Florence and you don't hear any Italian. They're all American college students. Um, and Athens was proud of having, having welcomed strangers at its height, as opposed to Sparta. That, that was, you know, those ignorant people who who are not cosmopolitan. Um, having a reputation for welcoming strangers is not the same thing as respecting. And the, the Greeks had an enormous um, uh, cultural arrogance. Right? Our word barbarian comes from the Greek word for not being able to speak Greek. So you are a barbarian, right? You don't you don't speak Greek, 
and so obviously you can't think. Um, uh, Paul is a non-Athenian and a Jew, and a Jew even then, even before the Holocaust, and even before the destruction of the Jewish nation, is the perennial outsider in the ancient world, because of course they thought of themselves as outsiders. They refused to be part of the culture uh, in which they existed. Um, Paul is described as a proclaimer, apparently a proclaimer, of strange gods. And there, the verbal form uh, occurs, and it's, it's not, um, it's like the passage in the New Testament where it says, speaking the truth in love, right? And, and really in Greek it doesn't say that. It says, causing the truth to come into being in love, and usually we do that by words, and therefore we translate it speak. Well, here it's causing something strange to come into being. He is, he's foisting something strange on us. And that language um, is uh, heavily reminiscent of the uh, accusations against Socrates that led to his execution. And uh, Luke, as I've already suggested, points out that the Athenians loved this kind of stuff, but that doesn't mean that they didn't love it in a condescending way. An another way of um, looking at something that they could feel superior to. What's the ideal textbook for a professor? One that is very learned, that contains all sorts of proof that the person uh, is, is very bright and is written by an utter fool. So that you can show how much brighter you are by pointing out the many mistakes. Uh, there's, there's that aspect of um, Athenian life at the time. Uh, the language that describes Paul as having been, they, they took him and brought him, uh, suggests some, a formal proceeding of some kind. Uh, there's no indication of formal charges. And is this a trial? I don't think so. Might it have been in their minds, if not communicated to Paul, a kind of preliminary hearing to see if what he'd say, and if a trial might be justified. Now, that, that's possible, or is it, is it more like a meeting of the club, where they, they want to hear what he has to say? All right, Paul, in front of that audience, appeals to the unknown God. Um, it says that Paul was provoked. Let's see, let me read the exact language. In verse 16, uh, at Athens, well, while Paul waited them, his spirit was provoked in him uh, when he saw that the city was full of idols. You know that, that verb um, occurs only one other place? in the New Testament, and it's in the writing of Paul. And Paul says in that writing, don't do it. <laughs> Love is not provoked. And it's always struck me that that's one of the, the 
uh, one of these signs that even the King James that I was brought up loving, even the King James could be questioned a little bit here and there. Because how does the King James translate that word? Anybody? Oh, come on now. Somebody here remembers the King James of 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> well, but love it is not easily provoked. Guess what? There's no easily. Right? They added the adverb because they said, oh, come on, God, you couldn't have meant that. <laughs> love is not provoked. Come on. Uh, well, yeah, he could make that. And uh, is Paul wrong here? Well, uh, there's one occurrence of the cognate noun in the Greek New Testament, and that's about Paul and Barnabas when they have a sharp disagreement over taking John Mark. And I think that we, we get a hint, especially from Paul's last uh, letters that uh, Paul thought he was probably in the wrong in that instant. Um, Paul is provoked. <sighs> if he's wrong, though, hey, um, he doesn't speak in anger. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And uh, he were to be angry and sin not, he gets control of himself and responds in a very subtle way. He says, I've been through your city and I saw um, the um, altar to the unknown gods. And this is, this is evidence of, of your uh, religiosity. Um, and um, he says, I perceive that uh, a, a gentleman of Athens uh, that uh, in every respect, uh, that you are um, especially religious, maybe, spiritual. Is religion a virtue? Not necessarily, right? That is, it, we have politically correct language in our culture where we're supposed to pretend that everybody who's religious, that we're making them, we're giving them a compliment when we say they're religious. The priests of Baal are people of faith. Right? Religion, unhooked from the truth, is not a good thing. It can be a disastrously bad thing. There are all sorts of people in the world right now who think that they are serving God by murdering little children and who would just love to murder us, all of us, and think of themselves as doing service to God. Being religious is not necessarily good. Paul uses a term that in classical Greek about half the time is used positively and about half the time it's used negatively because religion sometimes ends up being a positive thing and sometimes it ends up being a negative thing. Um, it means a fear of or respect or reverence uh, for the unseen world. Uh, for those beings that are beyond human beings. Uh, and he, he says, I, I know this because I saw uh, the altar to the unknown God. And uh, Pausanias, traveling in Athens, uh, 
two generations after Paul uh, records. He doesn't record seeing such an altar in Athens itself, but he records seeing such an altar in Pharo, one of Athens' seaports. Uh, and the same writer describes the Athenians as far more devoted to religion than other men. Uh, and we have to be careful here. It doesn't mean that they're religious in the way that people in Columbia, Tennessee uh, would regard religion. There is there, it, it is more, uh, unfortunately, in the first century, it might have been closer to the way in which people in California regard religion. Uh, not to make, I don't want to make any uh, joke at their expense that they wouldn't make. So I, I'm just saying, you, you know the cartoon uh, Doonesbury? There was a great Doonesbury several years ago where a certain character was described as a graduate of the California Institute for the Mellow. <laughs> They're going to be um, spiritually minded. Uh, it doesn't mean that you believe in either a capital G God or in personal uh, gods uh, that could be influenced by worship and thus the philosophic schools that are described as uh, having interaction with Paul in uh, Acts 17, the Stoics and the Epicureans, um, hey, uh, the Stoics uh, believed in a personal god uh, but did not uh, believe that, uh, well, a bit like Unitarian. Again, I have, a, I have a brother who's a Unitarian, so I can tell a Unitarian joke. Um, <laughs> what's the difference between a Unitarian and an atheist? A uh, Unitarian believes uh, in God. What's the difference between a Unitarian and a Christian? A Unitarian prays to whom it may concern. <laughs> All right. Lots of Athenians would have prayed to whom it may concern. <laughs> um, so Paul is appealing to a tradition that lives on in the monuments of the city. It is part of their culture, part of their identity, but doesn't live in the hearts of their elite. On the surface. I once preached the funeral of an elderly woman whose son was one of the most prominent surgeons uh, in at um, Mary Hitchcock Hospital, the hospital associated with Dartmouth Medical School. And um, uh, her husband, his father, had been the president of a uh, religious university, uh, not associated with Church of Christ. And uh, after the service, he, he broke down and told me that, that the service had touched a, a place in his life that he had been empty right, for many years because he thought back to the value system that he had been taught as a little child, how he had resented it at the time. His father was always away, never having time for his children. And you see that somebody can have that working in their mind, um, at the same time rebelling against it in some way, but also providing perhaps the only entry point 
for a serious consideration of religion. Paul says you, you have this altar to the unknown God, um, and I want to tell you about that unknown God. He made you that way. Right? He, he made you wanting to find him. And he did that um, so that you would seek him to, to feel rope for him. And perhaps find him. Um, the verb in, in Greek is uh, pretty unusual. I mean, a um, adjectival of uh, participial forms are a couple of other places in the New Testament. Um, but I, I was immediately, uh, the very first time I think I ever read this in the New Testament, I read uh, Homer's Odyssey uh, recently, I guess, and I thought, oh, that's exact, that's the, the exact word that's used in Homer's Odyssey. You remember the story of Polyphemus, the Cyclops, who traps Odysseus and his men in the cave, and they put out his eye, and they, but he sits at the opening of the cave, and they try to find him. He's groping for them. Um, Paul says, your, your ancestors were like blind men groping for God. And Um, that, that kind of, Paul's been bold in a way, right? And any true connection runs the risk of connecting in the wrong way, opening old wounds. But um, I think Brother Baxter, who um, provided the, his answer to the question of, what do you say when somebody says, well, my parents were fine people and, the, and they weren't baptized, or they went to this church. Brother Baxter said, well, what you should do is say to them, do you believe your parents were honest? Do you believe they did what they thought was right? And he said, of course they'll say yes. And Brother Baxter said, all right, be like your parents. If they did what they thought was right, well, you, you do what you think is right. So Paul's inviting these Athenians Keep searching for God because that's God's intention. And he goes on to appeal to the poetic slash philosophic tradition. For us, the two things are absolute, absolutely distinct. No one has tried since Alexander Pope to merge philosophy and poetry. And Pope's um, weird attempt to do so is read more as a curiosity now than either by people wanting to read good poetry or by people wanting to read good philosophy. We don't think they're together. The Greeks put them together. Uh, for us, uh, what Paul does um, has to be seen as two separate things. Why would I um, uh, quote poetry in a sermon? And uh, 
example, I, was, I spoke at Rotary Club in Jackson. Um, I don't, I forgot. Last week, I think. Uh, well, no, the week before. Valentine's Day, right? I get to speak on love on Valentine's Day. Uh, and uh, I intentionally use poetry. Why do I intentionally use poetry? Because I'm speaking to an audience that I think that maybe I can make a connection by using poems that they will remember from their childhood. And boy, I hit painter. <laughs> I had a Methodist minister who was there come up to me afterward and say, oh, my father used to read me that poem. Um, and he may have thought of that as an, an accident that I had mentioned the poem, but his thought, well, hey, that's, I, I, I put a lot of thought into trying to make that accident happen. Um, poetry conveys emotion in powerful ways that influence us um, when we're not um, aware of it. Um, and in the same way, why would I appeal to philosophy? Especially if I thought that the philosophy was wrong in, in many respects. It might be because, hey, I am appealing not just to a conclusion, Right, but to an historic tradition of trying to find the truth. You, you know the story of Socrates, right? How he starts as a teacher. He starts as a teacher because somebody, for who knows what reason, goes to the oracle at Delphi and says, who's the wisest person in the world? And the oracle at Delphi, I'm convinced, did not listen at the sacred spring and have Apollo say, Socrates the Athenian. I think that the oracle, for reasons probably political, says Socrates the Athenian. And Socrates' response was, what? I don't know anything. We're in big trouble, right? Because if I'm the wisest person in the world, I don't know anything. <laughs> and he, he ultimately came to feel that maybe he was the wisest person in the world because he knew he didn't know anything. Now, an appeal to Greek philosophy and to the philosophy of the present day that contains on its surface a recognition of humility, the limits of our mind that appeals to people to keep on looking, um, might have a great effect in drawing them to the truth. And uh, Paul quotes poetry, a, a philosopher, and apparently, the, the, the idea is very common in classical Greek that we all belong to God, we are of all one race, but the exact words of Paul match up uh, with a passage from a famous a poem called the Phenomena by Aratus, who was from uh, Paul's home area. And is Paul, is Paul sort of gently reminding people that, um, hey, I'm... I'm not a hick from the sticks. Right? I'm, I'm from a place that contains this kind of intellectual tradition. Um, now, in my time that remains, let me just try to make some practical applications here. Um, what, what would be the 21st century equivalent? And um, 
I, I can only use myself as an example, and it, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that I am particularly good at this. I'm just saying this is what I try to do, and this is my experience of when I've seen it occasionally work. I've, I've also seen it not work, uh, but on that basis, let me give you an idea or two. Uh, one is uh, a chapel. I've spoken in chapel at Free Hardeman about 20 times. And I think that any preacher ought to be forced to speak in chapel a, a, a few times in his life. And there ought to be a 12-minute deadline. Right? And they ought to install that trap door underneath. <laughs> so that you've got to say whatever you're going to say in 12 minutes and shut up. Um, Right there, if, if you're speaking in chapel, there are generally about a thousand people. That's 200 hours of human existence, 12 minutes times a thousand. And uh, that means that you should spend as much attention as possible so that you're not wasting 200 hours of human life. Every single word ought to matter. And if you've got 12 minutes, every single word has to matter. Jesus says you shall give an account for every idle word that you shall speak. That is, in context, what, what Jesus is saying is what you say ought to have a purpose. I was trained as a lawyer. Um, you know, you, you learn how to write in college and then you go to law school and they say, don't do it that way. <laughs> the, the main thing they teach you in, in law school is that busy judges don't want you to be eloquent. They want you to tell them what you got to say. And, and they say, every word that doesn't add subtracts. Same thing is true of preaching. It may not be as obvious. Same thing is true. So that is a joke. A, a, a good icebreaker. Yeah, but a better icebreaker is a joke that's tied to the central message that you have. Right? That doesn't divert people off into some other chain of thought. Um, let me give you an example. Now, the, the, I don't know whether it's the best chapel talk that I have ever had, but the, the best response of a chapel talk that I've ever had there were 300 tweets, I'm told, during chapel about my talk. Now, there are usually 300 tweets during chapel, but they're about, <laughs> boy, did you see the way he looked at me? Uh, I got, I'm, I'm supposed to, to teach on um, uh, loving others uh, who persecute you. So I, I have a new 10-week-old uh, Labrador group. And I think, all right. So I hide her in this, I have a student, hide her behind the curtain. When I get up to speak, he comes out with the puppy. Right. And, and now I realize I'm taking a risk. If you, any of you have ever worked with animals, right? so well, what if the puppy decides to pee on it? <laughs> right, you know, right in the middle of the talk. This is not going to be good. But as it, as it, it worked out perfectly. Uh, I think the puppy has had a future in show business. She has, she has since appeared in a student video uh, on an entirely different uh, subject. But 
Uh, right, everybody's saying, oh, it's sweet, little puppy. And I say, uh, hey, uh, I love this puppy. And is it a good thing for me to love that puppy? Yes. Am I obeying God by loving that puppy? No. Why? Because he didn't command me to love that puppy. Why didn't he command me to love that puppy? Because he didn't need to. God only commands us to do things that are difficult for us. And so when God commands us to stay married to the same person, or to share, you know, not be concerned about this world's uh, money, or to love people who don't love us. Well, that's, that's why there's a command. I have, I've worked great uh, as a way of entry into the world of the student. Uh, the students develop a certain um, immunity to traditional preaching. So you have to sneak up on them. Or at least I do. Uh, I think that, uh, frankly, Brother David Shannon, he doesn't sneak up on them and he just lets them have it and they'll take it from him. But I'm not sure they would from me. Uh, how about uh, give you another example? Um, I once uh, get up and I'm, I'm going to talk, and my assigned topic is a college education. And I'm going to say the exact reverse of what they, probably the people who asked me to speak, uh, expected me to say. Um, but I say, I, I'm going to, uh, for our talk today, we're going to talk about the worst of a college education, and so I want to refer to a great work of literature. <coughs> Horton Hears a Who <laughs> by Dr. Seuss. Right? And what, what have I tried to do? I've tried to defuse their expectation <coughs> that I'm going to get up there and lecture them about some academic topic. Right? And I say, you know, people try to sell you on education as a way to get ahead. What you ought to see as a Christian is education as a way to reach behind. You got big ears? Listen especially good. God's given you something, use it for his service. Uh, or the toughest chapel that I've uh, had to speak of, a memorial service for a student who died on a mission trip. And his family asked me to conduct that service. And uh, you know, part of it is I don't want to make it. Um, the faculty responding to that are a sermon from me. Uh, so other students take 80, 90 percent of the chapel time. Uh, but I, I do need to say something. And what I chose to say was to uh, refer to the language that many of you who are older uh, will have heard, and maybe some of the younger people in the room have never heard a preacher say it. Gospel meeting. It was common for people in in uh, a previous generation to conclude a gospel meeting 
pleading with people, Sarah's. Let's live our lives in such a way that we're all in heaven without the loss of one. All right, you see the connection? That, that boy lost to the community. Not lost to God. What do I want those students to think? I want them to make the connection to their lives. To earn some, not just to honor the boy, but to be made better by his life and death. Um, and, uh, hey, uh, let me give you two other examples and then I'll shut up and have some uh, time for questions. Um, I spoke at the Rotary Club last, last fall, and um, I uh, told stories about my favorite story to try to, um, well, let me, let me back up and say that after my talk, the, uh, a couple of members of the church who were members of Rotary in Jackson told me this. They said that Fried Hardeman had sent me, they had asked for a speaker from Fried Hardeman for their series, and Fried Hardeman had sent me. And uh, they looked at my bio, and they said, oh, no. <laughs> right? uh, and I, I get that. Right? Years ago, I was preaching uh, as a missionary, raising money. I preached at, at Granny White Pike in Nashville. And uh, after the sermon, uh, the guy who's running the elders meeting said, I think we ought to help this boy. Not only is he smart enough to go to Harvard, he's smart enough to keep his mouth shut about it. Uh, I understand that my background could be a barrier rather than a connection with certain people. Um, he said, oh, he'll talk about this technical stuff. He'll make no connection with us. And so, hey, I didn't, right? Because I foresaw what the problem might be. And so I, I tell the story about our sheriff being interviewed by a, a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he's chewing tobacco during the interview. This is in uh, December of 1968. And uh, during the interview, yeah, and the interview was hilarious for other reasons, but during the interview, he takes off his 10-gallon hat, which any self-respecting sheriff at the time would have, and he removes a hunt's tomato can that is sitting on top of his head and spits it and puts the can back on his head and is back on his uh, Hey, that's where I'm from, right? I, I'm not. I'm not born with a silver uh, spoon in my mouth. I'm not. I am a a Harvard man, um, God help me, but uh, I'm, I'm not just that. I need to make the effort. Um, I had a, a, a man, a longtime preacher in New England, uh, come to me near the, the end of my time in New England. He was a graduate of Sunset School of Preaching, and he, he made the effort to drive, I suppose he drove 100 miles to come see me, and he said, Jim, I just want to come here and apologize and ask for your forgiveness. I've cheated myself of your friendship 
for lo these many years. Because I thought I, I, I couldn't be friends with somebody like you. Regardless of our background, there's probably somebody who just has a false picture of who we are, and we ought to try to break that down. The final example I would give would be from my lecture this uh, year. is on uh, does being right uh, excuse uh, being harsh? And of course the answer is that, that being right demands being harsh as the world would regard harshness, but it also demands that you not be unnecessarily harsh. The offense of the cross is hard enough. We've got no business adding to it. Uh, now, that lesson is pretty straightforward. I closed it uh, with a quote from uh, President Dixon. H.A. Dixon was president of Free Hardman from 1950 to 1969. He spoke at the Lipscomb Lectures in 1948, and I'm just not preparing for that talk, but just browsing. I have read his lecture and found a, a very nice talk, a very nice quote, um, that the, the heart of it is a single line. The adversary may answer my arguments, but he cannot answer my life. Why did I use that as the close for my lecture? Well, I knew, right, that there would be people present who knew Brother Dixon and who loved him uh, and for whom that quote would be particularly um, meaningful. But that's not the biggest reason I used it. The biggest reason I used it is because I want those students who sometimes have a cartoon version of the, of the history of the church and think that, oh, now, now we're nice and, and enlightened, but in the old days we were just mean as shucks. <laughs> well, some of us were just mean as shucks, and some of us still are, but a loving presentation of the gospel is the reason why place like Freed Hardland existed to begin with. And the students need to know that. They need to see that as their heritage, not their invention. All right. That's the presentation. I'm, I'd be perfectly happy to respond to any questions that you might have. Nothing false. Right there, 
there suffers for sincerity. And so anything that's forced, um, there are professors who try to be buddies with their students. And I think some of the younger ones pull it off. I'm, all, I'm not totally convinced that's a good idea, but I am convinced that a 66-year-old man trying to be their buddy is stupid. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to somehow pretend um, that um, my life experience is there. Um, so uh, genuine authenticity um, is real. And um, I, would, I would say, uh, consider how Jesus teaches people. Um, the prodigal son is uh, one of the most powerful and effective stories ever told. And the, the heart of the story of the prodigal son is an appeal to our understanding of the, the best in us. Right? It says, think about the, the best, uh, the, the noblest, most truly unselfish love that you've seen in life. And that's, that's how God is. Um, and in the same way, I think appealing to the, the best in students, um, they're not very knowledgeable, many of them are not. Um, I uh, teach Old Testament history, and I think there's been a difference in the 13 years I've been there. 12 years ago, I could count them to remember, know something about David, <coughs> other than that he was the guy who killed the big guy with a rock. Uh, and now I'm not sure that I can, which is since 80% of them are from Churches of Christ, is troubling. Um, but. Knowledge, not so much, but intention to do good. That is, the desire for their lives to have some meaning is really powerful uh, among young people. I would say, you know, I have my own, own life on material possessions because I've had that kind of life. Um, and felt with people, complete sharing, and I'm not, I'm not a closet communist or uncloset communist either, uh, but I've lived with people where if I had needed any help, I was confident that they would give me, and that I was confident that they were confident, that no matter what, I would have given to help them to the limit of my ability. Being willing to give everything up is so much easier when you ain't got anything. These students can learn, they're, they're open to the idea of um, the church as a, as a place to find meaning and to find themselves by losing themselves. Um, a, one of the, to me, one of the most false narratives about the church in which I grew up, and I don't mean the local congregation, 
we from a little mountain place, and I grew up, uh, started preaching because the men in the little congregation where I preached couldn't read and write. So, hey, asked me to preach. Uh, but for the church as a whole, that I knew growing up, there's this narrative that we were asking too much of people. I, I just have a hard time saying that with a straight face. You could be a, a quote, faithful member. All you had to do was show up. That's not asking very much. As long as you didn't drink, dance, or run around with women, everything else was okay. Uh, challenging them, but not by criticizing challenging them to be who they can be. Any other question? Was Paul's sermon at Athens, was it a failure to the people of Athens? No, I don't believe so. That is, again, it's just by, we, we apply these unreal standards to other people's work. If I got a conversion after every sermon, just one, how many people here are complaining that they have only one baptism a sermon? <laughs> uh, and this particular baptism could have been key. I'm talking about the man, although there are other people who are baptized. But there's probably a reason why that man singled out. Uh, I think about Alexander Campbell's journey through New England in, I think, 18, in the spring of 1837. I might be off a year or two. Um, and he's uh, 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 preaching in uh, a little place in New York, a little village, and he converts a doctor. He's just there for the night. The doctor listens to him, studies, is baptized. And there's a church in that town for the next 150 years. Um, no, it's not a, not a failure. And may I say, um, I, we can't tell what might be a key baptism. Right? When I live in the house that T.B. Larimore lived in, when he was in Henderson, and that's not, that's not an accident. Right? I, I love Brother Larimore. I'm hopeful that a little of Brother Larimore is going to rub off on me at some point living in the same house. And um, he baptized about 25,000 people in his lifetime. The youngest child he ever baptized was eight years old. And maybe the most important baptism he ever. Because that, that little eight-year-old boy was named Batsel Baxter. Son, you may have heard of that. That's a <laughs> Yeah. Do you have something? I did. Um, this kind of goes back to something that along the lines of Andrew's question. Um, but there, and maybe this is not just an issue for our churches, it's kind of become, I think, a fixation in church culture on the millennial generation. And I know Dale's done some, he's made some observations here, and I've talked about this, but, um, you know, what are the, you know, some pitfalls 
and churches fixating on trying to reach, I say, a particular generation. You know, this ties into culture and things of that nature. Um, I just see, I just see dangers in it and, and blind spots. Uh, there's so much literature coming out about what we need to change in order to, you know, resonate to a certain generation. Well, let me, let me say a couple of things. One is that I personally, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything on that, um, but I personally don't like it when people refer to me as though I am an unthinking part of some larger group that's just going to herd around like little sheep. Um, I don't want people calling me a boomer. Um, and I suspect that it's not any more endearing uh, to young people to refer to them as millennials. Um, so that the, the individual human being is, it should be our focus. And uh, as your, the handout uh, suggests, I didn't cover it because it, it's very straightforward. Right, Paul tries to build a bridge to the Athenians, but where does that bridge lead? It leads to the story of Christ. And if, if you're going to change the truth to get them through the door, well then what in the world do you want them through the door for? serves absolutely no purpose. Um, the, the, the core message has to remain the same. Or it's stated another way, trust God. And, and truly believe in people. Um, I've always thought that it was insufferable arrogance for me. And I, I can remember the anxiety, right? The very first time I ever showed the Jewel Miller film strips. It was to a, a, a couple who were pretty sophisticated. He was a graduate of Dartmouth. And, um, and the, before the film strip, where you're going to pop the question, am I nervous? And the, I mean, I'm petrified. And so I asked myself, should I ask? And I, I asked him, would you like to be baptized? They look at each other and say, yes. Yes. To, to try to change the truth, to, to say about another person, I have to change the truth for you to accept it. Because you're not like me. I'm so holy and, and open-minded that I can accept it. But man, you know, oh, that's, that's just a bad attitude. Um, so the, the core message ought not to be changed. Uh, we ought not to treat people as groups, but at the same time, um, be alert to people's real situations. Um, if I could use um, a couple of absurd examples, I'm not sure that the agricultural metaphors of the New Testament uh, work that well in Brooklyn. Because they don't know, you know, it, it just isn't their work. Um, and a, something that I had to be reminded of is that almost any appeal will not, that, that really connects with one person will not perfectly connect with another. 
and may even be negative. Because that's, and, and what that says is that ultimately, right, again, we have this myth, back in the old days, people just responded to the invitation in droves in churches. They responded in to the invitation in droves because their friends and neighbors had been working on them for weeks. Right? And so the evangelists would come in and there'd be a bunch of responses. Individual Bible study is the key. Uh, and in the assembly, I, I, I appeal, I try to appeal on the most universal basis. I think that Jesus does, Paul does. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that many of you have had the same kind of experience. I had somebody come up to me after a sermon once and said, would you please stop talking so lovingly about the family? You make my wife cry every Sunday. Because she, her memories of childhood were not more happy. And you I couldn't, I couldn't do what that man suggested. Um, but we still ought to be aware. And I, I, I know by this time in my life, I can't escape a single day in my life without remembering that I've hurt people. Unintentional, but hurt them, really. If you hurt people enough without trying, we must be careful. Any other questions?